And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. The first live uh, program of Hands-On Apologetics for the year. So uh, kicking off, uh, I think, with a fantastic topic. And uh, it's great to be with all of you. I hope everybody had a uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And uh, it's time to get back into the dojo and, uh, you know, blow the dust off our brain cells and start learning to defend and share the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And, uh, like I said, great program today because we are going to look at a brand new book. It's called A Cardiologist Examines Jesus. And this book is where a bona fide cardiologist, a Catholic cardiologist, looks at some Eucharistic miracles. So we're going to have... A, Kristen Van Uden on, and uh, we're going to talk about this book. And it's, like I said, very fascinating, especially with the uh, newfound emphasis uh, within the church to, uh, to you know, emphasize Christ's real presence in the Eucharist. I think we're going to hear a lot and see a lot on the press, um, focusing on really where it ought to be focused, and that is on, uh, on Christ and specifically his presence in the Eucharist. So that's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about a cardiologist examines Jesus. On this side of the break, as always, we're going to go through some critical thinking exercises like circular reasoning. That's our finding the fallacy for today. And also we're going to meet an early church father, St. Cyprian of Carthage. So uh, great stuff in store for us today. By the way, I want to give a shout out to Don Johnson. Now, not the actor of Miami Vice. But Don Johnson of Don Johnson's ministry, um, yesterday, as you know, we did a best of show. We didn't do a live show. That's because I was conducting a video interview with him on a upcoming project for Ignatius Press. And it, the interview was largely about my uh, the book, uh, Revolt Against Reality. And so uh, it was fantastic to meet Don in person. We've had him once or twice on this show in the past. And I definitely have to have him back on. Just a wealth of knowledge, a convert to the faith, and just all-around great guy. Had a ton of fun. Uh, I think the interview went well. And uh, I think the the film that's going to come out is going to be fantastic. It's going to be talking about... Uh, well, I don't want to give anything away, but basically just, you know, the insanity we live in today, right? That's basically what my book's about. But the the film's not in my book, but it's in, it's about gender issues. So uh, look forward to that. Can't wait for it to, to come out. Um, it's going to be a little bit down the road, but, man, he was telling me about some other people he's interviewing. And, and like I said, it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating um feature once it's put together so many thanks to john don johnson for um doing that and uh yeah so we're right back in the saddle where we we've been and uh, learning to explain defend the faith and as always i want to begin by welcoming all of you to the show beginning with our live stream audience hello everybody also i want to welcome all of you listening on radio and also be a podcast around the world 
either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is Virgin Most Powerful Radio.org. Welcome aboard. Like I said, I hope everybody had a great New Year's. And and uh, so we're going to start this off uh, with a bang. So let's see if you have any questions. Uh, you can give us a call, 888-526-2151. That's 888-526-2151. Or if you'd like to email me, the best way to get a hold of the sensei is through uh, email, and that is at questions. Wait, let me say this correctly. Questions at handsonapologetics.com. And uh, that goes directly to me, and I love hearing from you. Got some great questions, actually. Uh, I, I think maybe I'll start collecting emails and, and put it together and kind of readdress those in show format because some of them are really interesting. And I think it would be great topics for future shows. So please keep them coming, folks. Love to hear from you. Um, yeah, okay. Let's jump into the finding the fallacy for today, which is circular reasoning. Um, circular reasoning is a logical fallacy in which the reasoner begins with what they're trying to end up with. So components of circular argument are often logically valid because if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. But the problem is if you're using your conclusion, you're assuming the truth of your conclusion in order to, as part of a premise in your argument, uh, you run up with circular reasoning. So you just go around and around and around. Uh, I encounter this awful lot in my own research. For example, while I was researching the Old Testament canon, it's amazing you'll find some scholars say, well, um, A is true because B is obviously false. And then you'll see another scholar argue, well, B is obviously false, so A must be true. Put those two together and you have a circular reasoning because it just goes around and around and there never is a foundation in order to establish uh, proof. Right. So um, <laughs> so that's circular reasoning. And if you're following an argument and I recommend this as you're listening to someone and you're following their arguments step by step, what you almost get a, a dizzy sensation whenever circular reasoning is at hand, because it feels like you're just going around and around in a circle. Um, sometimes circular reasoning can be difficult to spot because it can be kind of hidden under verbiage different language to express the same thing. Um, so you, you need to be careful. And that's what I always say with defending the faith. It's not so much learning what to say as to just be a really good listener. And if you listen closely and pay attention to what people are saying, uh, that can often uh, help you to help clarify their own thoughts, right? You can spot the, the problems like circular reasoning, for example, and Help them out a little bit. So that is our fallacy for today. Circular reasoning. Um, now, let's go to meet our early church father for today, who is St. Cyprian of Carthage. Big, big early church father, Latin father from North Africa. Uh, St. Cyprian was Bishop of Carthage. He's often called the African Pope. By the way, in the ancient church, uh, Pope the word Pope wasn't designated specifically to the Bishop of Rome. Uh, basically, any uh, bishop could be called the Pope of a particular area. 
So just FYI. So he, he's known as the African Pope because of his influence in North Africa. He was born at Carthage of wealthy pagan parents. And between the years 200 to 1080, he was converted to Christianity. And about the year 246 AD, he was raised to the priesthood and soon afterwards uh, to become bishop in around 248, 249 AD. Uh, when the Diocletian persecution broke out in 250 AD, he found a safe refuge in the hills outside the city from where, in comparative safely, he directed his flock by letters to his clergy. No doubt, Jurgen's faith at early father says uh, Cyprian's actions in taking safe refuge was a prudent course of conduct, and he proved later that he was ready for martyrdom, but his present conduct uh, made him an easy target for the barbs of his enemies, especially uh, when he was when he found it necessary to reprove a faction who wanted an immediate and easy reconciliation of the lapsed. And uh, one of those factions, a priest named Novatus, showed his bad faith when breaking with Cyprian, allegedly because Cyprian was uh, not easy enough with the lapsed. He uh, went to Rome and joined a schism known uh, of Novation. Not known of, but the name of the schism was Novationist. Uh, he who was an extreme rigorist in respect to reconciliation of the lapsed, generally denying reconciliation entirely. So this brings up a huge problem in North Africa after this uh, terrible persecution of Christians. What do you do with Christians who uh, forsake the faith under pressure and they wish to be reconciled back with the church? And so different positions were brought up. Some believed that you had to, they could be accepted, but only through extreme extreme um, of uh, repentance. Uh, others wanted a quick reconciliation. And then you have the, the other extreme of the Novationist who said basically they can't be reconciled entirely. Although Cyprian was uh, on excellent terms with Pope St. Cornelius I, he had to follow out sharply with Cornelius' successor, Pope St. Stephen I who reigned from 254 to 256 on the question of rebaptizing uh, converted heretics. And it was an immemorial custom in the African church to regard baptism confirmed by heretics as invalid. And in spite of Stephen's uh, severe warnings, Cyprian never yielded. His attitude was simply that every bishop is responsible for his own actions, answerable to God alone. The dispute was just at a dangerous stage when an edict from the Emperor Valerian uh, renewing the persecutory uh, measures against the Christians prevented it from ending in disaster. Stephen was martyred, Pope St. Stephen, in 256 AD, and Cyprian was exiled, and in August of 257 AD, he was beheaded near Carthage on September 14th and uh, 258 AD. And he was the first African bishop to die a martyr's death. And that is our early church father for today, St. Cyprian of Carthage. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about a cardiologist who examines Jesus. More to come. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, Hands-On Apologetics. And we're going to talk about a very important issue. Indeed, it's about the Eucharist. You can't get more important than that. And specifically, uh, Eucharistic miracles in the modern age, where we have at our disposal uh, scientific means to uh, look deeper into the mystery of many of these Eucharistic miracles. And there's a fantastic book that came out. It's called The Cardiologist Examines Jesus, The Stunning Science Behind Eucharistic Miracles. And it's put out by Dr. Franco uh, Serafini. And with us is uh, Kristen Van Uden, who received her M.A. in History from the College of William Mary in 2019. She previously studied the persecution of Catholics under a uh, communist regime, which actually would be great to have on the show just to talk about that. She uh, now researches contemporary Catholic saints and miracles as an author and spokesman for uh, Sophia Institute Press. And uh, she is honored to serve as a spokesperson for Dr. Franco Serafini and his fantastic book, A Cardiologist Examines Jesus. And, and Kristen Van Uden, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Hi, Gary. Thanks so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Now, did I get your last name right? Because there's a couple ways it could be pronounced. <laughs> yes, very close. It's actually Van Uden, but we pronounce Uden. it wrong it's kind of the americanized pronunciation so you are closer to the dutch original so good work with that <laughs> <laughs> i accidentally got it I'm right for a change <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh what a fantastic book um uh, maybe we could talk uh start off by talking a little bit about the author um dr franco serafini um what's his sure. background and what led him to write this book Sure. So Dr. Serafini has been a practicing cardiologist for decades, um, and he was also raised Catholic and has always been a very devout Catholic. So as a cardiologist, when he heard of these very contemporary miracles where the Eucharist, as we know, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, but was manifesting in these miracles as actual heart tissue that was observable to the human eye and under a microscope, he kind of just had to investigate because he had the expertise. He knew what he was looking at. Um, and he decided to investigate five such examples from 1992 in Buenos Aires all the way through 2013 in Poland. Um, he traveled to these sites of the miracles and worked with the scientific teams that had initially investigated them, looked at what ev whatever evidence remained in cases where that was possible, and then read just the scientific literature and the findings of, of these teams and came to the same conclusions with all of them, which are pretty stunning, which is that this, in each of these cases, was observed heart tissue that was suffering heart tissue and aligns with everything we know from the Gospels about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so um, uh, so he was a cardiologist that, uh, of course, uh, since these miracles uh, display uh, that their cardiac tissue. I mean, that really is his uh, field of expertise. So he was able to actually go on site, uh, check with medical teams, even look at evidence. Um, so, yeah, so 
this is just fascinating because the, the first uh, miracle he examines was actually one that I think our listeners are probably most familiar with. I can tell you, I wasn't familiar with the, all the rest, so this is a <laughs> learning curve for me. But why don't we start there with uh, the Eucharistic miracle sure. of Lysiano? Yes, so that is the oldest, one of the oldest Eucharistic miracles documented. It occurred in the 8th century in Lanciano, Italy. And the amazing thing is that this uh, material evidence of this miracle still exists. So Dr. Saracini was actually able to speak to the people who investigated and did medical tests on this back, you know, as, as late as 1981. So this flesh has survived since the 8th century in order to be scientifically investigated with all of the newest technology in the 20th century. So mm. it, that's a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Plus, if we didn't know what it was. Um, and so the story with that miracle is that historically, and we'll see this in the modern cases as well, Eucharistic miracles have been prompted either by great belief, but more often by great doubt among the faithful. In this case in Lanciano, it was the priest himself who was having doubts about the real presence. And at the moment of consecration, when he pronounced the words of transubstantiation over the bread and wine, that is when the miracle occurred, where the, the veil was kind of broken. So instead of being under the appearances of bread, um, Jesus manifested himself as the heart tissue right there at the moment of the transubstantiation. So this priest obviously regained his faith after this happened. Um, and we'll see when we when we start to ask the questions, why? Why do we have these Eucharistic miracles in these certain places and times? It's often to bolster belief among kind of failing faith or uh, more weakened faith in certain areas. So uh, with that particular miracle, what Dr. Saracini found by speaking to these scientists after the fact um, was that it was quite consistent with all of the other miracles that have occurred even up until um, as late as 2013. So one, uh, a couple of the just uh, scientific characteristics of this heart tissue was that, uh, number one, type AB blood was found, which we have found not only in the other miracles, but also is consistent with what's found on the Shroud of Turin. So I know one of, one of the major criticisms from skeptics is, oh, like in the medieval days, we don't know how they were collecting this evidence, so it could have been faked, it could have been a, a fraud, but it's quite impossible. And Dr. Saracini even says it would be more of a miracle for someone to have deduced what blood types were <laughs> in the yeah. medieval period um, than it would have been to just believe what we're seeing with our own eyes, which is a supernatural occurrence. Uh, yeah, right. So in other yeah. words, there would have to be engineering that would have been beyond their ability at that time. Uh, to to exactly. reproduce the same blood types all over the place with different uh, right. fraudulent miracles. Okay, exactly. Very good. And especially because AB blood type is is the most rare. Um, and in one of the later investigations, a scientist further pinned it down to be ABRH negative, which is actually only shared by 0.75 percent of the population globally. So it would have been really impossible to to even know that. Never mind reproduce it. Right. Yeah. Very good. So. So he uh, he looked over the uh, the report, and actually there was a couple of reports, and th that's one thing I really enjoyed about this book was Dr. Uh, Serafini, he's looking at it with a critical eye. So not all of mm -hmm. the things that are are in the records, you know, he accepts. There are some things that he'll say, 
the evidence is weak here or maybe there's things that we shouldn't even consider because it's just too weak. Correct. And I, I really like that as well. He's truly employing the scientific method of positing a hypothesis and then being, you know, having the courage to face what the answers are, even if they're not what we're expecting. Um, one of the issues that he faces, uh, particularly in Lanciano, because it was so long ago, is the possibility of contamination by other um, either DNA or just being being handled throughout the ages. Um, so that's one of the when we when he analyzes the the total amount of DNA that's found in each of the miracles, actually his conclusion is that it is inconclusive. And there is some, um, <clears throat> it seems, not tampering, but some, you know, DNA from, from the scientists and from those who kept the, the miracle um, and kept the relic throughout the years. And so he's very honest about these things, but ultimately his conclusion um, is that, of course, this is, this is real. This is what, it purports to be, um, and he's, he's placed this critical eye on it so that we may believe. Of course, the Gospels tell us, blessed are those who have not seen but yet have still believed, and Dr. Serafini fully believes that, but it's also just an amazing bolster to faith and to confound the realist that what we find is, is in fact consistent with what we believed already. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if someone's going to be able to identify a cardiac tissue, it would be a cardiologist, mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so, he, you know, he basically concern, uh, concurs with what was found, I think it was 1971, was it, the original uh, of scientific Lanciano. Look? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And one of the most fascinating things to me about the Lanciano miracle was that even after all these years, they were able to identify microbiological processes that just unequivocally established this as heart tissue. So one example mm -hmm. is that when this was placed under the microscope, the scientific investigators in both uh, 1970 and 81 discovered that this was a cross-section of the entire heart. So not only was the cardiac myocardial tissue very observable, which is it's a really distinct muscle tissue in the body. There's only three types of muscle in the body. You have your skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, which is what the digestive tract is made up of, and then heart muscle is very unique. It, is only, it only occurs in the heart. Um, but not only was that type of myocardial tissue found, but also the cross-sections of both arterial and venous blood vessels, the vagus nerve, and the endothelial lining of the heart, which is that inner lining, were all represented here in this cross-section. So when we think of how our Lord is manifesting himself, of course, it's amazing that what is actually contained in the host is, is the sacred heart itself, but also the entirety of that heart in, in cross-section. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, which what? I think would be something, again, that would be way beyond the, the, the uh, medical knowledge of that time to, to know that, you know, to cut out all the essential parts of the heart to make a fraud. Yes, exactly. Right. This is yeah. beyond any scientific reasoning of the time or even even we're discovering um, new things today. So one of the um, actually one of the diagnoses that Dr. Serafini makes is of a condition that goes by its Japanese name called Takotsubo. And that literally means a fishing pot for trapping an octopus. And mm -hmm. it means that because of the shape that the heart takes on when it's undergoing this condition. So this condition was only really discovered in the 1980s. And it's basically something that imitates a heart attack, but is not a heart attack. It's basically a psycho, uh, psychosomatic heart attack. So 
um, like an intense anxiety attack and the heart becomes constricted at the top and then larger at the bottom and it, it has a difficult time pumping blood. This is really consistent with what we see even as early as the agony in the garden, right? We know that our Lord at that time was under so much emotional and spiritual distress that he even sweated blood, right? So mm -hmm. the emotional distress uh, that mimics a heart attack but is not a heart attack, would not be a cause of death, uh, was already observable right from that piece of tissue that has been that has been here since the 8th century. Wow. Wow. So so not only uh, were they able to identify the blood type, uh, that this is myocardial tissue, that it contains all these different aspects of the heart, but even the condition mm -hmm. of the heart. I mean, that the, 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 uh, the victim had undergone you know, a great deal of stress mm -hmm. at one point. Yeah. Amazing. Right. And that's one of the most incredible things because, of course, um, the first thing I thought of when I when I even encountered this book for the first time was, you know, this is this is the Sacred Heart. And one of the um, promises of the Sacred Heart right at the beginning is that behold, this heart, which has so loved man that it has spared nothing, even to consuming itself to witness to its love. And we see that suffering um, reflected in the scientific findings. Wow. Yeah, very good. We're chatting with uh, Christine Van Uden, and uh, we're talking about the book, The Cardiologist Examines Jesus. More to come on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Kristen Van Uden about uh, the book, A Cardiologist Examines Jesus, The Stunning Science Behind Eucharistic Miracles. It's put out by Sophia Institute Press, and you can check it out there at sophiainstitute.com. And, uh, you know, this book examines so many different miracles. Obviously, we're not going to cover everything, but I think we could give a good sample of it. Uh, we just finished talking about the uh, miracle of Elishiano. And then there are some uh, more recent miracles moving on from there to uh, Bonus Aries. And uh, this has come to, to attention in the last few years. Um, maybe you can give us a little background about these Eucharistic miracles. Sure, yes. Yeah. So there were actually three Eucharistic miracles within four years in the Diocese of Buenos Aires. So 1992, 1994, and then 1996. And actually at that time, um, the archbishop uh, in charge of that diocese was Jorge Bergoglio, who is now Pope Francis. Um, mm -hmm. So pretty incredible, the connections there. Um, <laughs> like with Lanciano, these Eucharistic miracles were prompted by either a sacrilege that occurred or a lack of belief. So it's kind of, it's incredible, but it's sad at the same time because we see um, in, in these particular cases that a host was dropped um, during the distribution of communion. And then in one of the uh, later examples, another host was found on the ground. And in the final one was found actually in a candlestick somewhere else in the church. So when we think of just, you know, the reverence that we as Catholics have for the Eucharist, of course, that like, you know, horrifies our, our religious sense to think of um, just the host being neglected that way. But that is kind of the reason why Christ had to make himself manifest, right? Because the, the host was, was forgotten about and not necessarily through anyone's fault, but just um, fell away and the priest discovered it later. Mm -hmm. So what the process has been, um, 
from time immemorial, but really codified by John the 23rd, actually. When a host is sound like that, after the fact, on the ground, it may have fallen or something at some point during the Mass. The process is for the priest to put the host into some water for it to dissolve and then place it in their tabernacle. tabernacle. And after it's dissolved, pour it into the sacrarium. So pour the remaining water after the real presence has, has dissolved, essentially, into sacred ground. Um, if, if it's immediate, then, of course, the priest will consume it. But if, it, if it's found after the fact, that's what happens. So in each of these cases in Buenos Aires, that is the process that was followed to the T. And the very next day, it, it be, became like deja vu with them because after three times, it happened the same exact way where they opened the tabernacle the next day and the priest removed the, the goblet of water and found on the host that was mostly dissolved red spots that appeared like blood clots. And of course, there was some skepticism at first of, oh, maybe this is just some sort of algae or something like that. But they worked with the local universities, and as soon as that happened, um, elevated it to the bishop and um, sent it actually to a blind study. So the researchers didn't even know what they were looking at. And that's when all these discoveries were made that, yes, this is this is myocardial human tissue with all of the characteristics that we've mentioned. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So, uh, um, so that uh, had undergone a lab test then there in Buenos Aires, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, one of the things found in these tests, which was absolutely fascinating, was a condition that's called uh, contraction band necrosis. So necrosis essentially means cell death. So this is something that happens after a severe period of heart trauma or blunt trauma to the chest. And again, when we are looking at how this lines up with the Gospels, we know that after the agony in the garden, after Christ was condemned to death, he was not only scourged, but then also on the road to Calvary, fell hard several times and was unable to really break his fall because of carrying the cross. So that would really um, align with this cell death that we see occurring within the heart of just the extreme physical stress, but also the blunt, forcible trauma that would have occurred during the scourging to that particular area of the body. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Serafini goes on to actually uh, basically diagnose Christ with a, a whole slew of heart-related issues that are completely consistent with the passion. So one, another one that was, that was obvious through this miracle was stress-induced cardiomyopathy. So that's basically a reduced ability to pump blood. Um, and Dr. Serafini has actually forwarded what he believes to be the final diagnosis of Christ's final cause of death on the cross. Um, he has pretty much posited that it is a condition called cardiac tamponade, which basically means that the blood from the ruptured heart accumulates within the space between the heart muscle and the pericardial sac outside the heart. And that would compress the heart to a point where it could no longer pump blood. Um, after that would occur, then the, the blood would sink to the bottom because it was heavier of that pericardial sac, whereas the pericardial fluid would more so rise to the top. And that's called sedimentation. He found evidence of that within this heart tissue that was examined. And that, of course, would be consistent with what we know that happened after Jesus died, which is the 
the centurion um, stabbed him in the side with with his lance, and both blood and water, or water-looking substance, um, appeared. So it's it's just amazing that from such a very small piece of evidence, all of these accounts line up so closely with what we know happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, what amazes me is um, that, of course, Christ in the Eucharist is the risen Christ. He no longer suffers, mm-hmm. he no longer believes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, but Jesus, uh, well, when we receive the Eucharist, we receive the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, right? Everything that mm-hmm. makes Jesus, Jesus is there. Uh, not just a piece of cardiac tissue. So this is something that mm-hmm. our Lord wishes to be manifested to tell us something about what's being signified. And that uh, yeah. it's fascinating that, you know, it's that this shows deep evidence of, like you said, the, the passion that Christ went through is being evidenced in these Eucharistic miracles. Yes, and I'm glad you bring that up, that, yes, the heart tissue is is the synecdoche of the entirety of Christ, right? The, the part that is the whole. And one thing that really uh, emphasizes this is in Dr. Serafini's studies of the blood, so uh, these samples came mostly from the two miracles in Poland um, back in the 2010s. What he actually discovered was that there was an influx of lymphocytes. So those are white blood cells, which are basically the EMTs of the body. They rush to sites of trauma to start to repair um, damage. But the thing is, those are not produced in the heart. Those are produced in the bone marrow and then sent through the vascular system, through the lymph nodes, in order to make it to those sites in the body. So what that means is that this heart tissue was connected to a greater living mystical body. Uh, Mm. Of course, we say... um, like you were alluding to, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and he is always risen. He has defeated death. Um, so the fact that there is evidence of the of this living body um, aligns with that quite well. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's, Eucharistic miracles are amazing. They're like onions that you just keep peeling layer after layer. <laughs> There's so and... many different layers. Yeah. yeah. Going yeah. off of the... Um, of the glorified body that Christ now has, of course, after the resurrection. Um, This is where the DNA evidence is really interesting, because essentially in each of these miracles, there was not enough DNA available to be able to complete a full profile, which on the one hand is kind of a relief, because of course you're worried about, um, you know, like conspiracy theorists forwarding the idea of cloning Jesus or something like that. So we can just rest assured that um, we won't have to worry about that. But also, Dr. Serafini's theory about this is that since Christ was in a glorified body when when he rose, that would mean he would have glorified DNA. Human DNA as it is, is actually mostly junk DNA, as they call it. So there are STRs that just repeat these, um, these, these sequences that repeat over and over again that actually have no biological reason to be there. They don't code for anything in the body. They don't code for... Um, even any disease. They're just random mutations. Those are good for modern scientists because they allow them to identify individuals. So for forensic um, DNA profiling, for example, it's helpful. And also um, with the new kind of newer fad of ancestry DNA, for example, um, it's helpful for that, but they don't have any purpose in the body. Dr. Serafini thinks that because Christ's body is glorified, he would no longer 
you know, he would have no no use for the so-called junk DNA. And so that is another explanation for the lack of uh, full DNA profile or the lack of um, what we would consider the full genome. Of course, he was fully God and fully man. So this is not um, indicative of any sort of difference between him and and man as it is. But the fact that in our glorified bodies, all of any imperfection inherent to the human race is gone and um, anything that, that does not serve serve a purpose originally intended by God is, it would be gone. Interesting. Yeah. So, so there's actually a theory that, uh, you know, that could account for uh, the inability to, to check for DNA in these miracles. Exactly. Um, so it's not just that it wasn't enough evidence that this was intentional is, is basically the doctor's theory. Yeah. Yeah. So how did he, uh, did he travel to Buenos Aires to check this out as well? I believe he did, yes. Um, okay. <clears throat> these sites have become great sites of pilgrimage after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's been really good to see. And he touches upon this a little bit in that what he found when he traveled there was just a huge increase in faith among the, the laity at these parishes and also the priests themselves. I think he, he did speak to the priests when they were available as well. Um, so, yeah, when he could, he went to, to look at the evidence, but also... You know, you can think of that as evidence as well of the effects that these miracles have had in the parishes and in in the belief of of the local people, um, because you know we the the role of miracles in Catholic theology. Like, of course, we we believe even without seeing miracles, but they definitely can be used to not only evangelize but to strengthen our own faith. Absolutely. We're chatting with Kristen Van Uden about A Cardiologist Examines Jesus, a book by Dr. Uh, Serafini, by uh, Sophia Institute Press. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Kristen Van Uden about the book, A Cardiologist Examines Jesus, The Stunning Science Behind Eucharistic Miracles, and it's put out by Sophia Institute Press. I highly recommend this. I love books that uh, for apologetics and, and just for devotional purposes to dive into uh, you know, the, the, the best evidence that we have for the miraculous and the uh, there's just so much information here. Why don't we do one more miracle? And uh, since you've gone through the evidence um, thoroughly, um, which Eucharistic miracle that we haven't covered uh, most impressed you? Hmm, I would say probably the miracle in Sokulka, Poland in 2008. Um, this is one where it, this is absolutely crazy. The scientists found what they say was living heart tissue so there was a beating heart that was observable there was uh, what they observed as rhythmically beating tissue um within the miracle and it's just something like that it doesn't even need words to describe it (laughs) that's pretty much says it all (laughs) um (laughs) power of a statement like that I also thought this one was an interesting miracle to examine from like a sociocultural perspective, because 
in Poland, we, we think of Poland as a very, um, of course, devout Catholic country, but there is sort of a, a larger presence of atheists as well. And one of the interesting thing happened after this miracle occurred in 2008, the Polish Rationalist Association, which is sort of a humanist atheistic um, organization, actually brought charges against, I think, the church itself um, because of this miracle, because they claimed that if this was living myocardial tissue, that that meant it must have come from a human who was alive. So they actually brought charges of murder. <laughs> um, the court just dismissed it without even hearing this case because there were no, you know, reported murders or and no unsolved crimes anywhere really in the area. And <laughs> I think it was just manifestly ridiculous, uh, the charges that they were bringing. And so <clears throat> it's just quite interesting that uh, one would think that the skeptics would, their first line of defense would be to deny that it was heart tissue, but especially with this, with these later ones, because we have such solid photographic evidence under the microscope. So um, in this particular one, and in, in like Nisa in 2013, uh, I think have produced the best photographs. Um, there are some of Buenos Aires as well, but the technology was just a little bit more advanced um, by 2008. And so the skeptics, had to recognize that it was heart tissue and that it had all these characteristics. So then their next, uh, what they jumped to next was, oh, well, it must be from a, <laughs> from someone else because it can't be, uh, it can't be our Lord. Um, and so like, like Dr. Serafini mentioned again, in the context of, of Lanciano, it would have been more of a miracle to somehow preserve the heart tissue for that long and have it match up with all of these, all of these properties than it would have been to just, just believe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and th that's important for listeners to realize is that, especially with blood, you know, even treated blood has a, a shelf life. You can't preserve it mm -hmm. past a few days. And when you have something like Lysiana, where you could trace historically back to the 1500s for sure, if not earlier, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the presence of these things is inexplicable, especially when they didn't find any preservatives. Right. That's the thing. No preservatives at all. And then Buenos Aires, they actually delayed the investigations for a full three years. So the the host was sitting within just water um, for a full three years. So it would have dissolved under any other circumstances, really. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's interesting with the, the Polish miracle. Um, mm -hmm. Now, do they actually have video evidence of it still beating or is that just the testimony of the scientist? I think that's just the testimony. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, I don't think there's any video evidence of any of these particular miracles, um, which is, I know, we, <laughs> I wish there was. Um, yeah. You never know. But these, the thing is, these Eucharistic miracles continue to happen. So Dr. Serafini devotes a shorter chapter to a few miracles that he decided not to investigate because he didn't believe the evidence was compelling enough. But one of them, the latest on record that I have heard of was in here in the States, actually, in Buffalo, New York, in 2018. And it follows basically the textbook um, story that we've heard with these other miracles, where a host was dropped, found later by either the priest or an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, placed in um, the tabernacle to dissolve, and then the next day, something that resembled a blood clot was observed by the priest. In this case, the bishop did not want to forward the evidence for um, investigation, and so the process of dissolving was just continued, and it was poured away. But <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, you know, we have the technology, and it's like, I wish I could have known what was going on there. But um, 
we'll, we'll never know for that one, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, that's something I really appreciate about the book is uh, that he, um, you know, he's he has no problems dismissing things for lack of evidence and, uh, mm-hmm. and also going against uh, trends like that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much here. I wish I wish we had a couple of programs to talk <laughs> about. He, he examines passion cloths as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the major consistency between each of the miracles in which there was enough blood to test mm-hmm. and the Shroud of Turin, for example, was the blood type being exactly the same. And this is a, an opportunity that Dr. Serafini takes to really kind of philosophize about why these miracles occur and what they are telling us because he is very rational and scientifically minded, but he also has this, this religious sense where um, grounded in, in his faith um, where he's able to make these deductions. So the AB blood type that is on the shroud and also in these miracles is the universal receiver. So when we think right off the bat of the blood type of Christ, my immediate thought would be, Oh, it would be type O, right? The universal donor since he shed his blood for all of us. But in fact, Dr. Serafini explains that the universal receiver actually makes more sense because that means that each of us are dissolved within AB blood type. Um, It is the Mm -hmm. one that can receive anyone into itself. And this is consistent with, um, you know, just just Catholic theology about the precious blood. Um, And also, Mm -hmm. scientifically, AB blood was the last Uh, blood type to it's basically the last on the spectrum so it incorporates in itself every single other blood type it just has uh, additional proteins that make it different um so that that is just something that really makes us think about the, the character of our lord and what what he's telling us through this i think ultimately dr seraphine's conclusion is that the reasons for each of this these miracles is love. Um, you know, there's that great quote from St. Jose Maria Escriva, where he says, remember when you approach the tabernacle that he has been waiting for you for 20 centuries. Um, and when we see that, yes, this is in fact the same from the first miracle recorded through the shroud, through the, the tunic of Argentile as well. Um, and then up until 2013, it drives that home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, was it um, Athanasius that said uh, what Christ didn't assume, he didn't redeem? So he assumes into right. himself the fullness of our humanity. And that, like you said, <laughs> scientifically, that makes a lot of sense. You know, <laughs> exactly. it fits perfectly yeah, with like, these miracles. Yeah, and even uh, John Duns Scotus, his theory that um, Christ in himself recapitulated all of creation and all the good that had been created by the Father. Yeah, it, it lines up with that perfectly. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So, uh, uh, yeah, boy, I, I have to thank you for this book. And, uh, you know, we have a couple minutes left. I'd like to talk to you about your work at Sophia Institute Press. Um, tell us about how you got involved and what what's on, um, what have you been putting out lately? Sure. Yeah, so I have absolutely loved working here at Sophia. Um, I think we basically really do have something for everyone. So it's an incredible, incredibly diverse press that is grounded in the magisterium and is grounded in Catholic tradition, but explores different niches, um, whether that be art, 
science, as we see with this book, more lifestyle books or books that uh, cross over into politics as well. Um, <clears throat> really something between devotionals and then learning about the faith. There's always that give and take of, of course, you know, aura et labora. We must pray and work. We must, you know, continue to learn in our faith, but also spend time just in silent contemplation and prayer. And we have a, I think, pretty solid balance um, between building your faith life up in each of these ways. Um, a couple of our new releases that I have found very interesting, um, in addition to this one, we have a book by journalist Casey Chalk called The Persecuted, um, which is about Christians suffering persecution in predominantly Muslim countries throughout the world. And these are things that you never really hear about on the news. Um, he has personal testimonies of these families, and many of them have had to flee their homes. Some are still suffering in their homes and potentially even suffering martyrdom. And we think of, in, in today's day and age, martyrdom as a, as a remote uh, possibility, but these, these Catholics are suffering um, real red martyrdom, not just white martyrdom basically, in their daily lives yeah. just for just for witnessing to Christ. So it's incredibly inspiring and um, very, it really gives you courage and, and makes us grateful for the ability we have to practice our faith here. Um, another one we've got that was really perfect for Christmas and also for upcoming St. Joseph's Day coming um, sooner than we think. Uh, we have a book that's called The Silent Night, but it's Night with a K, which I thought was a really clever title. And it's the history of St. Joseph as depicted in art, actually. Mm. So um, written by an art historian, and it really contextualizes St. Joseph because, of course, St. Joseph does not speak a single word in the Bible, right? He, mm -hmm. he speaks through his actions, and it can be surmised that he, the one word that he would have spoken would be the name of Jesus, right? Because at the presentation in the temple as the foster father, that would have been his role to speak his name. But um, he is still one, one of the greatest but most, most humble saints in the church. And um, art is such, especially visual art, is such uh, a perfect way to access the humility and truth of St. Joseph's life because he was man, a, a man of few words. Um, yeah. So those are just kind of two of the books we have on different sides of the spectrum that uh, appeal to our different Catholic sensibilities. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And uh, again, where can people go to uh, get a hold of a copy of uh, A Cardiologist Examines Jesus? Yeah, so it's available at sophiainstitute.com. You'll see it right on our homepage as one of our new releases and also available on Amazon. Awesome. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Gary. God bless. You too. And uh, yes, pick it up. Very good book. Cardiologist Examines Jesus at uh, Sophia Institute Press. Man, the hour's flown. But uh, never fear. Terry and Jesse will soon be here with High Impact Catholic Talk with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everybody.